This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence and child abuse that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. 17-year-old Michael Swartz nervously gripped the hallway payphone as he asked the operator to make a collect call. Every time he called home, he felt like he had to prime himself for a fight. His parents always seemed angry, angry at him for screwing up, angry at him for existing. If they really cared about him, they'd visit while he was in the psychiatric hospital, but they never did. Instead, he had to settle for phone calls. Michael clenched his fist tighter around the phone as he listened to the long rings, waiting for someone to pick up. But then Michael relaxed when he heard the voice on the other end. It didn't belong to his mother, nor his father. It was his brother, Larry. He was the only one who really understood Michael. As they talked, Larry opened up to Michael about how difficult things had gotten at home. Their parents were giving Larry a hard time for getting D's on his report card. Michael felt himself get angry again. His parents never did anything but criticize. First, they'd done it to Michael, picking apart everything he did until he was driven out of the house. Now they were doing the same thing to Larry. It was infuriating. Michael thought, not for the first time, that he and Larry would be better off on their own. Sometimes, he felt like things would just be easier if their parents were dead. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a ParCast original. The legal definition of a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? 
You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Crimes of Passion for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This week, we'll meet Robert and Catherine Swartz. After the couple married in 1970, they adopted three orphan children, hoping to craft the perfect family. But the couple soon found that they were not equipped to handle their children's special needs, leading to tragic results. Next week, we'll see how the family's tensions erupted into a brutal crime that shocked friends and neighbors, as well as the community's struggle to find justice in the aftermath. Thirty-six-year-old Robert Bob Swartz met 28-year-old Catherine Sullivan in the fall of 1967. Both were graduate students at the University of Maryland, earning their degrees in education. They dated casually at first. Catherine wasn't completely charmed by Bob. She felt he was a bit arrogant. He refused to call her by her nickname Katie, declaring it too immature. Instead, he called her Kay, and he had a habit of over-explaining everything. Kay told her friend that he seemed like a know-it-all. But Kay found Bob interesting enough to continue seeing him even after he dropped out of the graduate program. They shared similar interests, principles, and conservative politics. Kay liked his curiosity and his sense of humor. In the winter of 1969, after two years together, Bob proposed and Kay accepted. They were married the following June. The couple settled near Annapolis, Maryland, in the suburb of Cape St. Clair. Kay found a job as a teacher. Bob, who had received electronics and engineering training in the Navy prior to graduate school, secured a position at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland. As they embarked on a new life together, both Bob and Kay agreed that they fervently wanted children. Unfortunately, they faced serious obstacles. Kay had undergone surgery for an intestinal obstruction when she was just five years old. The operation damaged her fallopian tubes, leaving her unable to conceive. Still, Bob and Kay were undeterred. They were devout Catholics, Kay by birth and Bob by conversion. Both were ardent supporters of the pro-adoption and anti-abortion movements. When they discovered Kay's infertility, they pursued adoption. Kay's brother later said, she thought it was probably God's calling for her not to have children, that she should take on some of the homeless children of the world. In June of 1973, their social worker contacted them about a six-year-old boy named Larry who needed a home. Larry had a harrowing start to life. He was born on August 25, 1966 in New Orleans, Louisiana, to a teenage sex worker. Not long after, his mother moved to Silver Spring, Maryland to escape her abusive boyfriend. 
she had no steady source of income and no resources to help her take care of her infant. She often left Larry alone for hours at a time. Then, one afternoon in April of 1968, when Larry was 20 months old, his mother left town, abandoning him in their apartment. He cried for so long that a neighbor contacted police. Larry was placed into foster care. Initially, Larry's caseworkers hoped to reunite the boy with his mother. A few days after abandoning Larry, she returned to Silver Spring and even called the police looking for her son. She expressed an interest in finding a stable job and bringing Larry home, but was also conflicted. She'd started seeing a new boyfriend and he wasn't interested in being a father. In April of 1969, she married her boyfriend. In June, a little over a year after abandoning Larry, she officially relinquished her parental rights. Larry's next few years were marked by abrupt, often traumatic changes in his home life. During his time in state custody, Larry was assigned a dozen different caseworkers which did little to grant him any sense of stability. His experience with foster families was similarly disjointed. He lived in four different homes over the next four years. Every time his caseworkers placed him with a new family, they hoped it would lead to Larry's adoption. But each time, the placement fell through. Before I continue with Larry's psychology, please note, that I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. In the year 2000, a committee of pediatricians published a paper in the official journal of the American Academy of Pediatrics. The paper discussed the effects of foster care on brain growth during the first few years of life. The authors affirm that children need continuous stable caregivers for optimal development. They stated that, to develop into a psychologically healthy human being, a child must have a relationship with an adult who is nurturing, protective, and fosters trust and security. Children who experience repeated separations from their caregivers are also at a greater risk of developing mental health and developmental problems, particularly if this separation occurs during the toddler years. The paper stated, Separations occurring between six months and about three years of age, especially if prompted by family discord and disruption, are more likely to result in subsequent emotional disturbances. Children with attachment disorders and an inability to trust and love often grow up to vent their rage and pain on society. Larry, unfortunately, had little chance to cultivate healthy attachments, putting him at greater risk of developing behavioral problems. His foster parents expressed different reasons for giving him up. One family claimed to be overwhelmed by his mischievous behavior as a toddler. Like many small children, Larry often had trouble obeying commands and frequently made messes. During one home visit to this family, a social worker observed that Larry's foster mother became angry when Larry shook baby powder all over the floor. There was nothing abnormal about this kind of behavior, but these particular foster parents were already under strain due to a deteriorating marriage. Small challenges like angry tantrums or spilled cereal seemed to overwhelm them. After six months, they asked that Larry be removed. Another set of foster parents experienced financial problems soon after accepting Larry into their home. 
they were forced to move in with other family members. The stress was not conducive to bonding. After several months, Larry's foster mother admitted she had not grown to love him yet. She was also frustrated by some of his behavior. She claimed Larry had enough to eat, yet always seemed hungry. He sometimes woke up in the middle of the night to dig food out of the trash cans and try to eat it. Several studies have found that foster children are susceptible to problematic food-related habits. In one paper on childhood trauma, psychiatrist Bruce D. Perry wrote, Odd eating behaviors are common, especially in children with severe neglect and attachment problems. They will hoard food, hide food in their rooms, and eat as if there will be no more meals, even if they have had years of consistently available foods. Larry's food habits were likely a signal of anxiety, but his foster mother didn't recognize this. To her, Larry's behavior was inexplicable and annoying. After Larry had lived with his family for a year, his caseworker ultimately recommended that they not move forward with an adoption. At a third home, Larry frustrated his new caretakers by repeatedly wetting the bed nearly every single night. As this habit wore on, it enraged his foster mother. Larry's caseworker advised the family that the problem stemmed from his feelings of insecurity, but this explanation did little to calm their anger. In counseling sessions, Larry described an unhappy home and a mother who yelled at him constantly. At one point, his foster mother became so angry at the sight of his wet sheets that she grabbed Larry's arm and twisted it behind his back. Larry tried to wrench himself away and his arm fractured. He had to wear a cast for the next five weeks. Larry's food scavenging also continued. A neighbor caught him searching her trash bins for food and teachers reported that Larry sometimes tried to steal from his classmates' lunchboxes. His foster parents were bewildered by this behavior. They thought he needed psychiatric help, but claimed they couldn't afford to pay for it. Eventually, Larry's fourth family decided to give him up. By that point, he had been assigned a new caseworker who was also working to help Bob and Kay Swartz adopt a child. When the Swartzes heard Larry's plight, their response was immediate. They wanted Larry to come live with them. Six-year-old Larry sat in the back seat of his caseworker's car, his hands folded in his lap. He felt puzzled. He was told that he was going to have yet another new mother and father soon, which meant that he was going to leave his old parents behind. It made him feel both happy and sad, and Larry found it confusing to feel two things at once. He didn't really want to live with his grouchy foster mother anymore but he didn't like how people always seemed to disappear from his life for good. He wanted all of his mothers to stay with him and he wanted them to love him. He always sensed that they didn't and this made Larry afraid. He wondered what his new mother would think of him. He hadn't even met her yet, but he desperately wanted to please her. He went along with everything the caseworker said he should do. He let her take him for a new haircut then, he followed her as she helped him shop for new clothes. She told him he looked handsome and he beamed. He'd hoped that he was doing everything right. He hoped his new family would love him. On June 8, 1973, 
Bob and Kay drove to the Maryland Children's Aid Office in Baltimore, where they met Larry for the first time. A caseworker described them as warm, outgoing, mature, and sensitive. She felt confident that she had found the perfect parents for Larry. But there may have been other qualities that caseworkers failed to see. Bob was described by some family members as stubborn and hot-tempered. He had a rigid, black-and-white view of the world. According to the National Foster Parent Association, not everyone is suited for the challenges of this role. The organization recommends people who are particularly flexible, patient, and understanding. If Kay had found him to be a know-it-all when they first met, she wasn't alone. Bob's brother Joe thought that Bob had an inferiority complex. Joe later said, If he knew something, he always liked to tell everybody that he did know it. He disliked very intensely being shown that he was wrong. In bringing Larry home with them, the Swartzes took on an enormous responsibility. It was one that would change their lives forever. Up next, after six years and five different families, Larry tries to adjust to his new permanent home. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Now, back to the story. In the summer of 1973, after months of planning, Kay and Bob Swartz were eager to adopt their first child. When their adoption caseworker told them about Larry, a six-year-old boy abandoned by his mother and shuffled from one foster home to another, the Swartzes quickly invited him to come and live with them. They bonded with Larry right away, introducing him to neighborhood children, buying him a dog, and taking him on a trip to Disney World. Larry seemed happy with his new parents. Once he moved in with them, his bedwetting waned. His behavior in school also improved. But Larry still felt nervous and insecure. He was afraid to cry or show any negative feelings. He had already been passed around so many times. He worried that if he did anything wrong, his new family might abandon him too. But Bob and Kay were thrilled to have Larry and anxious to complete his adoption right away. The court issued their final adoption decree in July of 1974. The Swartzes were so pleased with their new son, they wanted to grow their family even more. A few months after adopting Larry, they accepted a second boy into their home, an eight-year-old named Michael. Michael was born six months before Larry in March of 1966. 
Like Larry, he had endured a difficult childhood and a string of foster homes before moving in with the Swartzes. His mother also abandoned him when he was a baby, leaving him with no memories of her. His biological father was abusive. He used to beat Michael with a wooden board. Michael was removed from his custody around the age of four. Some of his foster parents had already labeled him a troublemaker. One even accused him of stealing. Although Kay and Bob were enthusiastic about the idea of rescuing a troubled youth, they quickly found Michael to be a challenging addition to the family. While Larry was quiet and eager to please, Michael was rebellious, drawing the wrath of his new father, Bob. Bob expected compliance from those around him, especially his children. He refused to tolerate any disrespect and did not respond well to Michael, who was prone to sudden angry outbursts. On more than one occasion, when Michael acted out by cursing at his parents or talking back to them, Bob responded with his fists. Kay's reactions were less physical, but also extreme. In response to Michael's cursing, she'd wash his mouth out with soap and lock him in the bathroom for hours. Even Larry noticed how hard his parents were on his new brother. Years later, he wrote, Michael was always getting into trouble over little things. We would get into fights and he would seem to be the one to blame. My parents seemed to always take sides with me and I wondered why they took my side instead of his sometimes, even when he was right. And those outside the family noticed the difference in how the boys were treated as well. Kay's niece, Lynn Sullivan, later said, I remember feeling sorry for Michael because it seemed that Larry was the favorite child. At times, Larry exploited this status. Lynn also said, Often Larry was very sneaky, doing something he wasn't supposed to and blaming it on Michael. Larry would act innocent as Michael got into trouble. Despite their troubles with Michael, Bob and Kay worked hard to adopt him. When Michael's biological father refused to terminate his parental rights, Bob and Kay went to court to sue for custody. They won their case and in April of 1977, they officially adopted 11-year-old Michael. Bob and Kay hoped that with steady guidance, Michael's behavior would improve. They were strict parents, forbidding television, soda, and sweets. They required Michael and Larry to take on a heavy load of chores. Despite Bob and Kay's rigid parenting, or perhaps because of it, both boys struggled. Neither performed well in school. After subjecting the boys to a series of tests, the Swartzes discovered that Larry's IQ results fell close to the borderline low range at 78. He was diagnosed with a learning disability and placed in a special education program. Michael's report indicated a normal IQ of 108. This was no relief to his parents, who felt that it meant he had no excuse for performing poorly at school. If anything, these test results justified Bob and Kay's harsh treatment of Michael and their sympathetic attitude toward Larry. For the most part, the two boys were close. They played together constantly. Occasionally, they got in trouble together. 
On one occasion, Larry and Michael were playing in church when they knocked over a glass decanter. Kay was so angry she took them home and spanked them with a coat hanger. Kay normally wasn't as quick to lose her temper as Bob, but she had high standards and she couldn't understand when the boys didn't meet them. She seemed to feel that harsh discipline was necessary to straighten the boys out. Later, hearing Larry's story, a caseworker remarked, this seems to be a pair of well-meaning persons who had a somewhat idealized notion of their prospective adoptive family. When met with the realities of dealing with two boys who had led thoroughly disrupted, emotionally distraught early lives and who came to them with many problems needing support, the Swartzes were caught short by the demands of this. A family acquaintance who taught Sunday school with Bob later said, they were abusive. No matter how hard they tried, no matter what they did, no matter how good their intentions were, they were abusive. Bob and Kay seemed to have their hands full with Michael and Larry, yet they still felt their family was incomplete. In 1978, they decided to adopt their third and final child, a four-year-old girl from Korea. They named her Ann Lee and called her Annie. The whole family instantly became enamored with their youngest child. She was given a bedroom all to herself, although when she had trouble sleeping, she often crept into Larry's room to sleep with him. 11-year-old Larry and 12-year-old Michael had previously shared a room, but after Annie's arrival, Bob and Cade moved Michael into their basement study. Michael vividly recalled the change in family dynamics, later saying, everything was directed toward Annie. She got everything nice. Around the same time Annie was adopted and as Michael entered his adolescent years, his behavioral problems increased. He experimented with marijuana, cut classes, and sometimes fought with his peers at school. Once he got into a fistfight on the bus, prompting the driver to ban him for a month, Bob and Kay refused to drive him to school, instead forcing him to walk the five miles each way. And Bob's disciplinary tactics remained physical, frequently crossing the line into abuse. Larry often fled the house and hid in the woods nearby to escape the sound of his father beating his brother. Larry trembled as he listened to his father's shouts coming from Michael's basement room. Every so often, he'd hear Michael shriek as well. The pitiful noise filled him with anguish. It was unbearable. Larry wanted to make it stop, but he was frozen. He couldn't make his feet move. What would happen if he went down there? Would his father stop beating Michael only to turn his rage on Larry? Bob was terrifying when he got like this. Even Larry's mother wouldn't confront him in this state. Larry pressed his palms against his ears and tried to stamp out the sound. He hummed to himself tunelessly, but he couldn't shut any of it out. He could only wait for it all to be over. There are a few studies on the psychological effects of witnessing domestic violence inflicted on a sibling, but one survey conducted by psychiatrists Martin Tyhere and Gordana Di Vitaliano found that witnessing violence towards siblings was associated with depression, anxiety, somatization, anger hostility, dissociation, and limbic irritability. 
Limbic irritability causes symptoms that may include headaches, dizziness, vertigo, or hallucinations, among other abnormalities. While Taihir and Vitaliano's study was limited, it suggested that individuals who witnessed violence towards siblings but were largely spared suffered from survivor's guilt. Their study further stated that it may also be the case that witnessing violence to siblings, but not necessarily experiencing the same, creates a persistent state of fear and uncertainty that may be more stressful than the actual event. This means that both Larry and Michael suffered from forms of abuse, Michael directly and Larry as a witness. As he grew older, Michael continued to act defiantly towards Bob. At one point, he told his mother, Kay, I could kill dad. I could kill him if I wanted to. But other times, Michael revealed the vulnerable boy hiding behind the tough facade. When Michael's neighbors announced that they were moving, Michael went to their house and begged them to take him along. He insisted that his parents didn't care about him and that they were going to send him away as all his other foster parents had done before. The neighbor dismissed Michael's words as normal teenage angst, but Michael wasn't wrong. By 1980, Bob and Kay had become frustrated with 13-year-old Michael's behavior. More than that, Kay was frightened. She'd confided to relatives that she was worried Michael might behave inappropriately with his little sister, Annie. She said that Michael often asked to give the girl a bath, a request Kay refused to grant. Kay's sister said, she just never trusted him with Annie. One night, Michael snuck out of the house to hang out with friends. He spent the night at a neighbor's house, at school the next day, he was called to the office, where he found his social worker waiting for him. She informed him that his parents had reported him as a runaway. When he got home, Bob and Kay gave Michael an ultimatum. If he remained in their house, Kay was prepared to file a complaint with the Department of Juvenile Services and make him face the legal consequences of his delinquency. He would have to participate in legal proceedings and possibly face probation or some other court-ordered penalty for running away. Or he could leave and find a new foster family to live with. Michael chose the latter. He packed a small bag and left with his social worker. It left Larry incredibly confused. His parents wouldn't give a clear answer about his brother's departure. All he knew was that Michael was gone, which meant that no one was around to protect Larry from the brunt of his father's temper. Coming up, Larry becomes the new target of his parents' frustrations. Whether you're making a delicious family meal or a post-workout snack, choose the farm-fresh taste of Eggland's best eggs. Only Eggland's best hens are fed their proprietary all-vegetarian feed. That's what makes their eggs more nutritious. With 10 times more vitamin E, 25% less saturated fat, and six times more vitamin D compared to ordinary eggs. Eggland's best. Better taste, better nutrition, better eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com to learn more. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Now, back to the story. 
In early 1980, Bob and Kay Swartz demanded that their adopted 13-year-old son, Michael, leave their home. They found his behavioral problems too difficult to handle, and they wanted to protect their other adopted children, 13-year-old Larry and 5-year-old Annie. Almost immediately after moving in with a foster family, Michael found more trouble. He and some friends broke into a string of homes, stole some items, and damaged property. He was promptly kicked out of his new home and sent to Longstretch Youth Home, a juvenile center in Western Maryland. The Swartzes refused to visit him there, nor did they allow him to return home for the holiday visits or furloughs. But Michael still called the house to speak to Larry. The boys commiserated with each other over their unhappy lives. Although Michael was the one confined to a juvenile detention center, Larry too sometimes felt like a prisoner. Michael's absence didn't seem to ease any stress on Bob and Kay. In fact, they seemed more anxious than before. They had already been fairly strict as parents, but they soon became even more severe, especially as Larry continued to do poorly at school. Aaron mostly C's and D's in his class as he had for years. Now, Kay and Bob seem zealously focused on his academic performance. Kay worried that Larry would go down a bad path as Michael had. For Bob, Larry's grade suddenly seemed to be a point of personal pride. He began pushing the idea that Larry someday attend the Naval Academy in nearby Annapolis. He seemed furious that Larry lacked the cognitive ability to achieve this goal. He frequently berated Larry, calling him stupid. When Larry was 14, he expressed an interest in becoming a priest a vocation that his religious parents actively encouraged. After completing middle school, his parents enrolled him in a religious high school, but Larry couldn't handle the course load. His grades were so poor that he was asked not to return the following year. Instead, Larry attended his local public school, Broadneck Senior High School. Later, his mother secured a teaching position there. By attending the same school, she could keep a careful eye on him. When Larry was little, some of Kay's relatives felt she was lenient or even overindulgent toward Larry. But her parenting style seemed to harden as he grew older. At times, she would set his curfew at 6 p.m. so he wouldn't be out carousing after dark. She was similarly strict about allowing him to hang out with friends, closely monitoring the activities he was allowed to participate in. Larry found his parents' behavior embarrassing and their restrictions stifling. One neighbor later recalled that her son invited Larry over to their house to watch the movie Superman 2. Kay phoned the neighbor irate. She said the PG-rated film was inappropriate for teenagers due to a suggestive scene between Superman and Lois Lane. Before she slammed down the phone, she also screamed that the neighbor would burn in hell for screening the movie in her house. When he turned 16, Bob and Kay refused to allow Larry to take driver's ed, telling him that his grades weren't good enough for him to handle the responsibility of driving. Even when his grades slightly improved, they refused to pay for the classes, saying he could take the driver's course only if he paid for it himself. Larry couldn't afford the course fees. What little money he earned, mowing lawns and doing chores for neighbors, went towards paying for clothing which his parents refused to buy. 
Kay said he was too careless with his things, telling him she wouldn't spend money on his wardrobe if he was just going to throw the clothing on the floor of his bedroom. Larry grew increasingly frustrated and eventually began to defy his parents. Sometimes he snuck away with friends to drink beer or smoke pot. Michael used to disobey his parents to their faces. Larry simply lied to them. But despite his efforts to hide his behavior, Bob and Kay sometimes caught Larry sneaking into the house drunk. Kay began to worry he was an alcoholic. Eventually, Bob started beating Larry just as he had abused Michael. A neighbor once spotted bruises on Larry's back. When she questioned him, he admitted that his father Bob had done it, but told her it was an accident. When she pushed him to talk about it, he broke down in tears. He told her that his parents didn't love him, claiming that they had threatened to send him away like Michael. The neighbor tried to reassure him, but he remained convinced that his parents didn't care about him. During a phone call with Michael, Larry brought up his troubles at home. Michael told Larry to run away, but he was too scared. Larry worried that if he left, his parents would then turn their anger onto his little sister, Annie. Michael explained, See, when I was there, it was me that caught everything. When I left, Larry started catching it, and he figured if he left, Annie would catch it. But even though Michael felt angry at Bob and Kay, he still ached to be a part of the family that had turned against him. In August of 1983, he received a weekend pass to leave the detention center. He decided to visit one of his foster families who lived close to the Swartzes. While there, he stopped by an old neighborhood friend's house. The friend encouraged him to drop by his parents' house and say hi. She assumed Bob and Kay would be happy to see him. Michael agreed. But an hour later, he returned filled with rage. His parents didn't want to see him. Bob and Kay had told him that he was no longer their son. Michael heatedly told his friend that he was going to kill his parents. Then he, Larry, and Annie would be free from their cruelty. Disturbed, his friend drove him back to his youth home and tried to shake off the frightening talk. That same month, Michael had a fight with his roommate and was kicked out of the juvenile center. He moved into a shelter in Annapolis, but in December, he was expelled when he threatened a counselor with a knife. After this incident, he was committed to a psychiatric hospital in Crownsville, Maryland for a mental evaluation. Larry could only watch his brother spiral. He began to wonder if he was on the same path. His relationship with Bob and Kay continued to deteriorate. In November of 1983, his sister, nine-year-old Annie, discovered a bag of pills in Larry's jacket pocket. She showed them to her parents who confronted Larry. He admitted it was speed, but claimed he was only holding the drugs for a friend. Bob and Kay were furious. Kay threatened to send Larry to reform school. A month later, a police officer found Larry and his friend John walking home in the middle of the night. The boys had been eating a late meal at an all-night diner. The officer was concerned about the boys being out so late at night, so he gave them a ride to Larry's house, where John spent the night. Seeing them escorted home by the police, Kay immediately assumed the boys had been up to no good. 
When John's mother Eileen came to pick him up the next day, she found Bob and Kay in hysterics. Kay was convinced the boys had gotten drunk the night before, despite their denials. In front of John and his mother, Kay told Larry that he had ruined his life and that he would never amount to anything. To Eileen, she said, I just don't know what we can do about him. He's beyond help. Larry didn't know what to do either. As far as his parents were concerned, he couldn't do anything right. He felt like a failure. Research shows that harsh parenting tactics affect a child's ability to regulate emotions, which can lead to several problem behaviors. In reviewing an array of studies, psychologist Gwen Dewar noted that children raised by authoritarian parents are more likely to abuse alcohol and are more likely to display aggression, defiance, and antisocial conduct. They may also be more likely to suffer from emotional problems like anxiety, low self-esteem, and depression. All Larry could do was endure his parents' uncompromising rule until he was old enough to leave. He confided to his friend John that his biggest fear was that he wouldn't have enough money to move out of the house when he turned 18. 17-year-old Larry tried to find happiness anywhere he could. In January of 1984, he began spending time with one of his female classmates. After hanging out together in school and exchanging kisses between classes, they agreed to go on their first official date on Saturday night, January 14th. Larry's mother Kay grudgingly allowed Larry to go on double dates as long as they were only going to the movies. But when she realized that his girlfriend was a student in one of her classes, she disparaged the girl with insults, claiming she had a terrible reputation. Larry bitterly listened to his mother's tirade. Then he went out with his girlfriend anyway. Instead of going to the movies with the other couple, friends that Kay approved of, Larry and his date went for ice cream, then purchased beer from a liquor store with a fake ID. Later, they had sex in her car. Knowing what his mother thought before the date, Larry wondered what she would say if she knew what he had done. He became livid all over again. Larry slipped into the house, making it inside just before curfew. He breathed a sigh of relief, glad that he had made it home in time. He didn't need to set off either of his parents again, but as he plodded to his room, his relief gave way to a familiar tight heavy feeling in his chest. Tonight, he could revel in the thought that he had managed to get away with something, something big, but tomorrow was another story. Bob or Kay would find something else to fixate on, a new critique to lob at him. It never ended. Maybe it would be bearable if he could find a way to break away, if he could ever get some space to himself, but that was impossible. Larry had to contend with his mother at school and then Bob's raging temper at home. He wasn't even allowed to drive a car. He'd never escape. Maybe his parents were right and he'd end up like Michael in a mental hospital or worse. At least then he'd be free of them. In mid-January, Larry sat for his exams at school it was a stressful time for him. He never liked taking tests. On January 16, 1984, he sat for a Spanish final, 
one of his worst subjects. Later, he saw his girlfriend, then went sledding with a group of friends. That evening, he returned home to find Bob enraged. One of his computer disks had been destroyed, the files on it ruined. Larry sheepishly admitted that he'd been playing with his father's computer the day before. He might have accidentally destroyed the disk. Bob tore into him, railing against Larry's irresponsibility. As Larry listened, he grew increasingly furious. He was tired of his parents' lectures. Afterward, he slunk to his room and drank from a bottle of rum he'd hidden in his desk. As he drank, angry thoughts swirled around his head. Later, he wouldn't be able to explain why he got so angry. He was dismissive of the fight he had with Bob, calling it no big deal, no worse than any of their other arguments. But in that moment, he was enraged. He felt humiliated and defeated. It seemed that nothing he did was ever good enough for his parents. He hated them and he wished they were dead. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We will be back Wednesday with part two of Larry Swartz's story and the brutal murders that tore the Swartz family apart. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Crimes of Passion for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Crimes of Passion on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Travis Clark, and Joel Stein. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Christina Pamies, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon, I'm Lainey Hobbs. 